Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing journey of learning and evolution of the IT professional. This is your first time joining the podcast. Thanks so much. We appreciate you joining us and spending some time listening. Purpose of the podcast is to share practical, usable, actionable, real-world information on various technologies and products across the full stack of the modern data center. If you're a returning listener, well, thank you very much for coming back. I'm glad I didn't scare you away. Uh, we appreciate you joining us once more. Today, I've got a, a great guest. I'm really looking forward to today's show. Uh, joining me today, I have uh, George Miranda, and we're going to be talking about service meshes and Linkerd. George, thanks for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, you being uh, able to uh, to get on. This is a topic that I have been deeply, deeply interested in, and so I'm really looking forward to being able to share some practical, useful information for listeners out there. I'm sure that there's lots of folks who are wondering about service meshes and where Linkerd fits into that. And uh, so I'm hoping that we can give them some real useful information. Um, George, do you mind just sharing sort of a little bit of a background about, uh, you know, uh, where you are, what you're doing these days and, and how that pertains to service meshes and Linkerd? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, hi everyone. My name is George Miranda. I am, uh, Director of Community at Buoyant. Buoyant is the company behind Linkerd. Uh, personally, I'm a career infrastructure engineer. Uh, worked in a variety of settings, small startups, uh, large enterprises, mostly in finance and video games, uh, managing distributed systems, mostly in Unix. Um, my passion has always been uh, automating myself out of a job and always trying to build better tools for people that need to manage infrastructure. And so about five years ago, I made a switch over to Vendor Life uh, when I joined Chef Software uh, as a consultant, uh, as a developer advocate. Uh, my job there was working with users and building community in a variety of ways. Uh, and then it was with the early release of Chef's container solution that I became very familiar with the container and Kubernetes uh, ecosystem. And so as I spent more time there, I got really interested in how folks were building tools to solve some of the problems that uh, are apparent when you start working in cloud-native ways. Uh, and that led me to Buoyant. So I'm here to support users and help you have a better uh, cloud-native experience overall. Awesome. Awesome. That is, uh, you know, George, you are exactly the kind of person I want to have on the show because, you know, a lot of the listeners are infrastructure folks and that's where your background is. And of course, we have a lot of sort of very significant shifts in how um, IT professionals are being asked to to do their jobs. A lot of automation, a lot of changes in how they're doing things, containers and and uh, container orchestration, et cetera, et cetera. So you know you're you're kind of the the ideal candidate. So I'm I'm really excited. Uh, yeah. So um, real quick for people who would uh, like to follow you online, are you active on Twitter or anything of that nature? Yes, uh, you can always find me on Twitter, uh, gmiranda23. Uh, feel free to email me. You can reach me George at buoyant.io. So I'm going to warn you, the hardest part about that is spelling buoyant correctly. Um, so just find me on Twitter, gmiranda23, but feel free to reach out. We'll put the contact details in the show notes. All right. Awesome. Thanks, George. Um, all right. So let's let's dive in directly to today's topic, and that is um, service meshes. So um, maybe real quick for listeners, can can you provide a real quick background on on what the idea of a service mesh is and, and what is driving... The, the presence of service meshes. Like we, we've heard this um, term used around, you know, if you're following cloud native sort of space, you, you've heard of Linkerd um, and some other products in this space, but what kind of, what is the purpose here and, and what drove the creation of this sort of technology? 
Sure, there's a lot to unpack there, right? We'll start with what a service mesh is first. So um, a service mesh is basically a, a dedicated infrastructure layer for handling service-to-service -service communication. And that layer should have two distinct components that each behave differently. And this is terminology that has emerged thanks to Matt Klein at Lyft, author of uh, the Envoy uh, Proxy. And so a service mesh should have both a data plane and a control plane. Now, the data plane is the layer that's responsible for moving your data, right, or service requests uh, through your service topology in real time. In practice, what that means is that that layer is typically comprised of a series of interconnected proxies. And so what happens is whenever your applications make service-to-service -service calls, um, they're unaware of the data plane's existence, right? That, that proxy is basically transparent. It sits there and intercepts every single inbound and outbound packet and manages how communication happens between your applications. So that's the data plane. A service mesh also has a control plane, and the control plane is really where the magic happens. So a control plane exposes new primitives that you can use to then control how your services communicate, right, and sort of manage the behavior of that communication. So when you, as, as a human, right, interact with a service mesh, you're interacting with the control plane. And when you interact with the control plane, those primitives enable the enable you to do some fun things that you really couldn't do before, right? Things like dynamic routing or latency aware load balancing, uh, you know, setting default encryption, rate limits, et cetera, right? And so you use those new primitives to, com to compose some form of policy. And then when you have that policy defined in the control plane, the data plane reads that policy and alters its behavior accordingly. So from an architectural level, from the high level view, that's what a service mesh is. That's how it operates, right? There's more to it, but we can start there. Yeah, no, I think that's a great introduction. So let me see if I can just repeat back some of this and, and I'll pull in some of my background coming out of, out of systems and, and networking, spent a few years in the SDN space. So the idea of having a data plane and a control plane is, is pretty well known in the networking space. And of course, the idea behind SDN being separating that control plane from the data plane and typically centralizing it in some form or fashion. And it sounds like we may have something similar going on here, but operating perhaps at a higher layer uh, of the OSI model rather than operating. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could still be operating at, at layer three or layer four, but kind of, it sounds like we're incorporating some layer seven awareness and some layer seven primitives uh, in the solution. Um, in addition to perhaps some of the lower layer, lower layer primitives, excuse me. Um, does that sound, does that sound accurate or? Yeah, that is absolutely correct. Right. And so, uh, a service mesh presumes that a usable network already exists. And what we know from years of managing layer three and layer four networks is, uh, you know, we can make them pretty solid, but especially in the cloud, those networks can be fundamentally unreliable. And so we operate at a higher level, presuming that that network already exists, right? That there are constructs that manage, uh, you know, latency and, and basic routing, right? And, and connecting point A to point B. Um, but once that network exists, right, we do have a higher layer, layer construct specifically only looking at service-to-service -service communication and managing what happens when those applications are communicating with each other versus some of the lower-level operations that might be happening in your operating system, for example. And so when we talk about service-to-service -service communication, because um, you've referenced that a couple of times, we're talking about not just, a, say, a layer 4 port, but actually 
perhaps even more commonly or or more frequently, it would be something like a layer seven uh, endpoint, uh, uh, you know, an HTTP endpoint or something of that nature. Is that accurate? Uh, that's absolutely correct. Whether that's HTTP, a gRPC, right? When we're talking about remote procedure calls between applications, that is the meat of what a service mesh should be managing. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. So now uh, I'm hearing service to service and we're, we're unpacking that and saying that it's really more about layer seven, HTTP or, or gRPC or something of that nature. Um, how is this related and or how, how tightly coupled is this to the sort of the, the microservices architecture? Is this something that you would typically only see in those environments or um, you might see it in others, but most commonly would be in sort of a microservices architecture? Well, that's a really interesting question because I think the value of a service mesh uh, is particularly felt in a microservice architecture, but the problem has always existed, right? And the problem is that service communication lives in the shadows. And what I mean by that is that you can sort of infer what's happening at that service-to-service communication layer, but there aren't really ways to directly measure that. I think back to my days uh, as a systems engineer working in monolithic settings, right? And service to service communication was typically very clear in a three-tier architecture, right? My presentation layer talks to my application layer, talks to my data layer. And if there's something that I need to troubleshoot, right? There are only so many places to look, or I can look at the logs in one endpoint and compare that to the logs in the other endpoint to figure out what's happening. Or then I can also rely on uh, maybe uh, network monitoring tools, right? Maybe there was a hiccup in my network and that's what's causing the issue. Uh, But those are all external observations, right? There's nothing really in band that tells me what is happening with that communication. And back in my day, I would use things like TCP dump, for example, right? And using TCP dump, I could inspect things at a wire packet level. But when I do that, right, it's sort of like fishing for a needle in that proverbial haystack. I have to know what I'm looking for based on some sort of hook, where it's coming from, where it's going to, what the payload is. And in monolithic architectures, that was usually pretty clear. And and that sort of dance was enough, right? Because troubleshooting that sort of scenario um, was very infrequent, right? Or very uncommon, or it didn't happen a whole lot. So it's fine that it could be that kludgy. But when you start moving to microservices, those service-to-service relationships aren't always very clear. Right? Suddenly you have this plethora of data sources that don't have clear relationships or some of the functionality is a little obscured there. And, and so don't get me wrong, right? Like with microservices, we, we gain a lot of benefits, clearly, you know, resiliency, manageability, uh, a number of things become easier. But uh, as, as happens with any new breed of solution, um, you also get a new breed of problems. And I think my original point was this isn't really necessarily a new breed of problem because service communication has always lived in the shadows, right? It's always just been sort of hidden in that network layer somewhere. Um, It's just that when you start operating in a microservices model, that problem is now unsustainable and it's one you can't live with, right? We need visibility in our production services. We need control. We need to manage that layer. And so uh, when you don't have a service mesh, there's just not a way to do that, right? And service, a service mesh really just makes that service-to-service communication uh, a first-class citizen, right? Something you can see and manage and control. And in monolithic architectures, I think that value is there. I mean, you, you certainly gain something from, from seeing that, but because it's such an uncommon event, 
when you start operating in a microservice uh, topology, that is when the value really shines. Right. Okay. That that makes sense. So you might see some benefit from using a service mesh in in say a more monolithic or traditional three tier architecture, but it's really going to shine when you're in um, a, a microservices sort of architecture where the visibility and the sort of complex interplay between services becomes, or should I say pushes this issue really to the forefront and it becomes uh, a major topic that you have to address. Yeah, absolutely, right? And I think we see this sort of challenge um, even in monolithic applications, right, where we have different development teams contributing code to the same repository or to the same applications, but managing different parts, especially in larger organizations where you have uh, distributed development teams all managing now different services that are completely disconnected. Some of the relationships between different uh, application functions aren't very clear. Sometimes uh, calls to a particular service are obscured, right? And I think a great example of this is let's say that uh, I manage service A and I make a call to service B, right? Service B, in order to fulfill the request that I've sent it, might need to call services C, D, E, and F in order to gain perhaps some data, right, compose together an answer for me and send it back. But as the owner of service A, if that call to service B fails, I have no idea if it was any of those other services behind it that failed. I just know that service B failed, right? And so when we start distributing different functions of our applications into smaller microservices, being able to reason about where a failure is occurring, how it's happening, um, who to contact, right? All of those integration points, um, I think, are lost. And so this is a problem that, you know, is both happening on the infrastructure layer and both happening in the organization layer. I think it's just more visible again um, when you start working with microservices. That, that makes a lot of sense, absolutely. I could, I could certainly see where breaking um, applications down into different components and then distributing them and sometimes scaling them independently creates new traffic patterns that weren't there before and new failure modes that weren't there before. And so therefore we need a different sort of approach to actually tackling that. Absolutely. All right. So let's, let's shift gears just a little bit. And I know you mentioned that you work for Buoyant, which is a company behind Linkerd. So I wanted, can you just spend a few minutes, um, you know, telling listeners about Linkerd and then we'll, we'll transition from there sort of into how they might use Linkerd to build a service mesh. Sure. So uh, Linkerd has its roots in the Finagle library, which is an open source library used by Twitter. Uh, Oliver Gold and uh, William Morgan, our founders, uh, have some great talks about the history of Linkerd and how that occurred. We can put those in the show notes if you're really interested. Um, but the TLDR basically is that Twitter dealt with many of the problems of that microservice scaling approach um, earlier than a lot of organizations. So they developed Finagle to deal with a lot of that complexity. And Finagle is an extensible RPC system that's written for the JVM. Uh, it's written in Scala, right? And it provides both Scala and, and Java idiomatic APIs. Um, but the, the solution there, the approach, is to create a communication library that can then be used by your apps, which means that your application code and your network management code is very tightly coupled. Oliver and William broke off to found Buoyant, and they created Linkerd, which is a way to more loosely couple that relationship. And so the, the goal with Linkerd is to be able to provide that sort of global visibility and management layer to all of your applications, regardless of the language that it's written in. 
right? So this is great for polyglot infrastructures, right? Or if you have microservices that are written in different languages, um, you can still use one common solution to, uh, to provide that sort of service-to-service -service communication layer. So uh, Linkerd has been uh, in the market for about the last uh, year and a half. Uh, you know, we were the first service mesh solution that was out there. We coined the term service mesh to talk about what it is that we're managing. And so uh, here's what I'll say about Linkerd. Uh, Linkerd also has a control plane and a data plane as any service mesh should. Um, but Linkerd was also built before those terms existed. And so when you start by looking at Linkerd, I think sometimes it's confusing to new users. Um, because although the functionality is clear, once you become familiar with the architecture, um, things aren't specifically labeled that way. So um, when you look at the docs, right, uh, I think I have a new uh, blog series that starts laying out where some of these components are or start like, conceptually navigating your way through how this service mesh is built. Um, but that's a little bit about Linkerd and where it comes from. That's that's perfect, George. So at a high level on, and Clearly, there's always a lot of, you know, devil in the details sort of thing. But how would, um, you know, conceptually, again, at a high level, how would somebody go about incorporating Linkerd into uh, an, an architecture where they're saying, okay, I'm, I'm building a new application or I'm refactoring an application. I want to take advantage of a microservices-based architecture for portions or, or all of the, of the application or, or services that are being involved here. And they, they realize the value of having a service mesh for all the reasons that you've described. How, how, do, how do they go about, like, how does Linkerd sort of plug into that solution? Again, I know there's lots of details and, you know, it depends on this and that and the other, but just at a high level, how would they go about doing that? Right. And so the way to think about it is because it's basically a tran uh, transparent proxy, there are a couple of ways that you can start implementing that layer. The two most popular ways are either uh, once you start you know, packaging up your applications into containers with a microservice architecture, uh, you can either deploy a Linkerd proxy, right, part of that data plane, as either uh, a sidecar to any of your containerized processes. Uh, or the other way that folks do it is they will set up one proxy per physical host and then have all container traffic route traffic to local host, right, and then all traffic proxies uh, through that one local host instance. So there are some detailed ways to do that. Uh, some of the docs on the Linkerd site walk you through how you can get started regardless of your platform, whether you're using uh, Kubernetes or uh, using DCOS, AWS, uh, Elastic Container Service, right? whether you're just using Docker uh, or a couple of other platforms. All right, so basically the, the, the high-level gist there is that uh, Linkerd is going to operate as a, as a transparent proxy. They can either run that as a sidecar or even potentially as a container within a pod, um, or they could run it as a, a host level uh, solution, a process or something of that nature, and then route all the containers or pods through, through, through Linkerd in that regard. Absolutely correct. Okay, perfect. So, um, you know, we're, we're about 20 minutes into the podcast and, and I'm, I'm always, you know, sensitive to making sure that I respect the guest's time as well as my listener's time. And, and um, so let's, Let's um, kind of start getting into some of some of the practical stuff. So if a, a person out there, you know, coming from, let's say, a systems background or a networking background, something like that, and they say, hey, this, this service mesh thing sounds important. Um, you know, I totally understand what George is saying here. I, I get it. How can I get started? Like, where would you recommend 
um, somebody getting started saying, hey, I need to understand better how to implement or support um, or design a solution that incorporates a service mesh built on Linkerd, where would they go? And, and maybe before we get to that, like, what are some prerequisites that somebody should be familiar with before they get started on Linkerd? Yeah, so let's start with prerequisites. Um, I think a, a prerequisite is absolutely being familiar with um, using containers, uh, being familiar with microservice architectures. Uh, like for example, if you take a monolithic application and you shove a container into it, I'm not sure you'll necessarily be getting anything out of the service mesh pattern. Um, but if you have a lot of services, right? If you're managing a lot of services that communicate with each other and you have no clear way of measuring or observing what's happening in that service communication layer, that's when you'll benefit from a service mesh. So the prerequisite is really that you just have a lot of services that you're managing and you have no idea if those services are healthy or how service requests are failing or what's happening, right? If that layer is hidden to you, then you are ready to start using a service mesh. And if you find yourself ready to start using a service mesh, by far the very first thing that users seem to get out of the service mesh approach is just a layer of visibility, right? Any service mesh, including Linkerd, is going to give you top line metrics that tell you what's happening with your services, right? Things like the overall volume, failure rates, uh, latency, right? You'll start getting an idea of what is happening in that layer uh, without doing any configuration, just by uh, installing the service mesh, right? And, and coupling your applications to it. So a great way to get started with that, um, Linkerd has a fantastic docs section. Um, we also have a series on our blog specifically for Kubernetes. Um, it's called a service mesh for Kubernetes. It's I think a 10 or 11 part series on how specifically to get Linkerd running in Kubernetes and a highlight of the different types of functionality that occur, how to manage it, how to you know, gain better visibility, right? how to do latency aware load balancing, um, how to really just start kicking the tires and seeing everything a service mesh can do. And I think even if you're not a user of Kubernetes, the series is written in such a way where if you walk through the tutorials, you can get a pretty good understanding of the different types of use cases and the different types of functionality that a service mesh will provide. So uh, it sounds like, you know, for folks who might be interested in, in getting started, um, you know, first they should, they should make sure they're pretty comfortable working with, uh, you know, containers, containerized solutions. So they need to have a, a good, a solid grasp on sort of the container runtime and, and, you know, packaging um, applications as uh, containers. And, and totally to your point about, you know, just taking an existing application and shoving it into a container, it's not really, you know, kind of what the ultimate goal is here, but, um, you know, you need to be looking at if you are um, being asked to design or support um, or help architect uh, a, an architecture where you're going to have a lot of different services and it's going to be more of a microservices based architecture than, Certainly Linkerd is, is applicable, but first you need to make sure you're really good with the container runtime and, and related pieces. It sounds like, I um, mean, correct me if I'm wrong, George, but um, Linkerd really, uh, I mean, you, potentially, I guess you could use it outside of an orchestrator, but you really need an orchestrator in order to use it as well. Is that is that accurate? Um, that's somewhat accurate. I'd say more accurate is when you start looking at running containers in production, that's when the value of the service mesh and using Linkerd as a building block really becomes apparent, right? When you start managing production loads between services and you start to have to troubleshoot issues that may occur, uh, that's when it becomes clear that this building block is an essential part of your production stack that you may not already have, 
So maybe not necessarily closely tied to an orchestrator, but I mean, if we're speaking practically, you know, the reality is you're probably going to use an orchestrator when you start running containers in production. And when the, the issues and the problems that Linkerd will really help solve will become, you know, sort of apparent. So therefore, you know, it may not be um, a causation, but there would be a correlation, let's say, between, uh, between, you know, Linkerd being a, a valued part of the solution and there being an orchestrator present. Absolutely, right? And so those two things are not interconnected. I mean, they are, right? There's not causation, but there is definitely correlation. Perfect. Um, so now, if I, if I can, I'd like to dive in just, just a, a little deeper and, and, and talk more about like sort of where this fits in and help people sort of get an idea. So let, let's say that, um, you know, again, I think a, a fair number of the listeners on the show are going to be coming more from you know, an infrastructure background such as your own or, or my background, um, they may not be as deeply familiar with, with some of the concepts that we're talking about here, but they're kind of working their way towards that. Um, so uh, what would be required, if anything, if, if I take an application, let's say I have a, you know, I, I have a, actually a simple uh, Flask application that I wrote um, that does nothing other than just report sort of the requests that, that it received and, and how it responded, right? But if I wanted to take that and sort of make it use Linkerd, is there some sort of special configuration required? I mean, you mentioned that it's a, a transparent proxy, so it should be pretty seamless, but do I need to point environment variables to have this thing go through Linkerd or special network routing, you know, uh, you know routing it through a, a Linkerd container? I mean, what typically are the sort of the mechanisms that users will see? Yeah, so uh, in order to do that, the first thing you need are at least two different application endpoints, right? You need to shift traffic from one endpoint to the other, right? And that is where Linkerd will help, right? That proxy uh, will move traffic between point A and point B. Um, now, the mechanisms to do that can vary. Now, you can go ahead and use uh, Linkerd, for example, to do things like service discovery. You can use an external service discovery tool like console, for example, and tie that into Linkerd. But typically, your applications will make some external call, right? Very similar to uh, name resolution, right? You will have uh, an alias for a particular destination and then a service discovery agent that actually changes that into a hard address of where to go look. That can be handled by Linkerd. It can be handled by an external service discovery tool. Um, so there is a little bit of configuration that happens there. But really, I think the biggest value of Linkerd is that in that network proxy layer, you'll start to see how those communications occur uh, you get some control that you can set. You don't have to configure these things by default, but once you start using Linkerd, you have the option to do things like set a retry limit if any of those communications fail, right? Or define what communications should be like from service A, right? Maybe service A uh, will go ahead and transmit requests to service B, but when they go to service C that's critical, I want to retry that request you know, 10 times every 20 milliseconds if that thing fails. And you can set retry budgets around that. Uh, you can set things like uh, how all communication happens globally, right? Maybe services A, B, C, and D should all be encrypting traffic and sending that over TLS when we transmit requests over the wire, right? All of those things are configurable in Linkerd, um, but again, you don't have to set any of those things up to start using it. Again, I think the very first thing you get out of it is just visibility in that layer that makes troubleshooting a whole lot easier. And all you have to do in that setup is have a proxy at two endpoints. Yeah, so there's certainly a lot of functionality that 
Linkerd offers. Um, but for somebody getting started, they can just set up, um, you know, the proxy at two endpoints and have you know, two or more services that are communicating um, across uh, across the uh, service mesh. Sounds like there is some some you know going back to our terminology, some control plane configuration we have to do, and some data plane configuration we have to do so that we have the right uh, well the right uh, you know information being fed into Linkerd so it can make the decisions that that it needs to make in order to do what you're asking it to do. Is that right? Right, and you start with very minimal data plane configuration, uh, and the control plane configuration can be virtually nil in order to get started. And um, and so, uh, you know, listeners, we will include in the show notes um, some URLs and links to some of the um, blog posts and, and getting started guides that George has mentioned so that if you are interested in trying this out yourself, you can go review those resources and and give this a try um, see um, what you know it could do for you or for your um, your organization uh, or your customers, whatever the case may be. Um, all right, so George, you know, as as we're you know getting ready to wrap up, um, I was just curious, you know, more sort of a um, pontificate, if you will, about the future. It seems to me that that um, the idea of a service mesh is a pretty significant change, if you will, to sort of how networking is done moving forward. I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think what we're discovering is that as users uh, start running microservices in production, it becomes very clear that that networking blind spot exists. And I think what we're going to discover is that this is a very necessary solution in order to gain visibility into that blind spot. But what's happening is if you look around the ecosystem, you'll have seen that there's a surge in service mesh implementations that's occurred over the last few months. And I think that basically validates the idea that a service mesh is necessary in order to run these applications in production. So if I were to think about the future, I think what's happening is uh, at Buoyant, we've been very encouraged by that surge um, because we've seen a lot of positive things come from it. Um, For example, uh, Istio and Envoy uh, have been working to uh, make users aware of the service mesh pattern. Um, I think, uh, you know, again, Matt Klein did things like set up the uh, data plane and control plane terminology that very much works. Um, and I think what's what's happening as this ecosystem evolves is uh, we're going to learn a lot of lessons about what it takes to actually run a service mesh in production uh, and how that mesh needs to be set up, right? I think it needs to be performant. I think it needs to be fast. I think it needs to not be in user's way. Uh, I think it needs to be very easy to reason about what is happening in your infrastructure, because at the end of the day, this is a troubleshooting and visibility tool, right? I think all of those things need to be conceptually lightweight and clear. And as we start uh, solving these problems in production, I think we need to do that without adding additional cognitive burden. So if I were to think about where the service mesh is going in the next few months, I think you're going to see solutions that are lightweight, performant, fast, easy to approach, easy to get started with, and we're just going to keep building in that direction. And so in thinking about um, sort of how things are happening, you know, I, I have a background in, in sort of, it sounds funny to say this was a traditional SDN, right? Um, right. <laughs> you know, the sort of network virtualization kind of, you know, space where we're, we're creating overlay networks or, or something else of that nature, or even, you know, maybe working with traditional open flow and, and, and installing flows into physical switches to direct traffic or, or whatever. Um, and, and that happened, you know, more at, at layer three, layer four of the network. 
Um, now we're talking about service mesh happening more at layer seven and even in, inside layer seven. So being able to make decisions based on a, a path or a URL or a host name, you know, in a request. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, they're, they're both tackling sort of visibility and, and routing and network control. Um, I, I wonder, is there is there value in having those things combined or do you think they'll always be sort of decoupled? I mean, there, there's value in having things decoupled, um, kind of going back to your point about, you know, the origins of Linkerd starting in, in Finagle, but that being sort of very closely tied to Java and, and Linkerd coming out of that as a way to say, hey, here's a, here's a way you can do the same sort of thing, but in a, in a language agnostic way. Do you think that same sort of decoupling offers benefits when you you don't couple a, a lower layer lower layer networking solution with a service mesh and having those sets, sort of things operate independently from one another? I think there are arguments to that uh, to that question that go both ways, uh, but I think my take would be that uh, there are plenty of tools that are already working well in the layer three and layer four. Uh, part of the uh, of the OSI model, um, whether we uh, couple these solutions more tightly together, um, again, you know, benefits and drawbacks both ways. I think what is important is having a central place where data from all of these sources that are you know managing different parts of the stack is available. Right. Uh, I think the real value is or should be seen from the user perspective. Right? When I'm operating my infrastructure, when I'm troubleshooting uh, issues that are occurring in production, what I don't want to do is go to you know, half a dozen data sources to try to triage what's happening and figuring out you know, what is really occurring in my stack. And so I think ultimately the right approach will be to figure out what is the right level of data to present to an end user so they can understand where issues are occurring in production. Does that mean tightly coupling with lower parts of the stack, or does that mean maintaining an independent relationship? I think as this solution grows, as we see more adoption, and as we start to get a better idea of what large complex use cases are like, we'll have a better idea. Um, luckily, Linkerd has been managing a service mesh in production for about the last 18 months or so. We, we have an idea of what our users are doing, but I think as the ecosystem grows, as this approach broadens, we're going to see a variety of viewpoints, and then I think we'll be better equipped to, to dive deeper into that question. That's a fair response. I mean, it's always hard to sort of, you know, guess about where things are headed. It, the thought occurred to me just as we're, as you're sitting here talking about, you know, it almost feels like there should be a central repository of data that is being gathered at various layers of the network, um, and then a, 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 almost a, a group um, of of different controllers or control planes that act upon that in different ways that are appropriate for what they're responsible for. Like, you know, one controller acting at a layer three, layer four way, another controller acting in a layer seven way. Um, but based on the same sort of underlying data about the network and the services and the communications across that network, I don't know. That's an interesting thought. I'll have to unpack that maybe a little more. Or I might just be crazy. Who knows? <laughs> I think I think I very much agree. And I think what's going to be interesting is seeing how exactly that unfolds, right? And uh, I think, uh, you know, especially in being in the vendor ecosystem and seeing how different folks approach different solutions, I think there's always some crossover in products. Um, but ultimately, I think a lot of the success or failure of those uh, really comes from users, right? Are they gaining value from the places where we are extending or detracting our footprint, right? Only time will tell. 
Yeah, absolutely agree. And it's something that I've talked about on the podcast here, reminding listeners, you know, so many times as, as technologists and, and geeks, we get so wrapped around the axle about the technology, but we have to remember that it's really all about the business and supporting our customers, whether customers are internal for, you know, a traditional sort of IT person or whether those customers are external um, for a product or a solution that you are producing. That's what we really have to make sure that we're, you know, providing value for customers, that they're getting um, some something out of it, um, whatever it is that we're doing or working on. Um, great. So this has been a fantastic discussion, George. I've learned a ton and I really appreciate that. Um, as we get ready to wrap up, any sort of closing thoughts that you want to share with listeners, any additional resources you think would be helpful for someone who is saying, hey, I feel this is important. I need to add this to my skill set. Let me jump in. Um, yeah, I would say that uh, my transition into living in a cloud native world, I think, is, is very fresh on my mind. Uh, I think there are a lot of concepts and a lot of learning that I've been doing over the last year to two years. Uh, and I think there are a lot of places where we can really dig in. Uh, an invaluable resource for me has been looking at the Cloud Native Compute Foundation uh, and just becoming a lot more familiar with cloud native patterns and projects. Uh, for example, yesterday I spent a ton of time looking at the Open Tracing Project and Zipkin and Jaeger, which are you know, basically tools that you can use to track and, and trace service requests throughout the span of your microservice architecture. Uh, those tools actually plug into Linkerd very well. And I think it's, it's easy to approach a service mesh and it's easy to get started with visibility. And once you start down the path of looking at what all the different controls are and all the different things that you can do with the service mesh, the rabbit hole goes deep. And so uh, while it's very approachable, it's also very powerful and really lets you uh, extend your usage into uh, you know some some edge case scenarios, and I think a great place to get started by that uh, with that is to look around the CNCF, look at what different projects are doing and the use cases that they address. And as a user coming from a more monolithic world into this setting, I think that's been absolutely invaluable for me, and I hope other folks gain value from that as well. That's a great suggestion, George. Thanks. And we'll be sure to include a, a link to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation and, and related projects in the, in the show notes for listeners so that they can uh, take advantage of those resources as well. Um, awesome. All right, George, uh, just remind everyone real quick um, how they can uh, get in touch with you online. Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter, gmiranda23. That's G-M-I-R-A-N-D-A-2-3. Well, you heard it there, folks. That's how you uh, stalk George on Twitter. Um, thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. Really uh, hope that you've uh, enjoyed the, the show as much as I have enjoyed it. Um, if you are interested in getting in touch with Full Stack Journey, uh, you can hit us on Twitter at FSJ Podcast, or you can hit me, the host, Scott Lowe, directly at, uh, at Scott underscore Lowe. And uh, as always, we do appreciate you taking the time to join us. Uh, if you did enjoy the show and you found it useful, we also ask that you take a few minutes to give us a, uh, some feedback or a rating on iTunes or wherever it is you found uh, the show. And we hope you join us again for future episodes. Thanks so much. 